term Dark Knight of the Soul comes from a 16th century poem written by a Spanish mystic. It is a term that describes the spiritual crisis that emerges in a person on his way to a mystical union with the divine. It is a difficult time marked by temporary feelings of desolation, melancholy, and hopelessness, all guideposts on a trip back to one's authentic self. I have experienced this in my own life many times, and my sense is that my next guest is experiencing it as well. Kurt Jaimungo is the host of the podcast Theories of Everything. And if that title seems overwhelming, that's because it is. It seemed overwhelming to me because I believe it is impossible to discover the truth about everything. Though the term comes from the field of physics, the sense that I got while interviewing Kurt is that he is painstakingly in search of everything and that he is on his way to finding out that he will be unable to find it. Our conversation meandered into so many different twists and turns, I sometimes didn't know where we were, but I thought it was important to stay in that lost liminal space, wanted to have it teach me, wanted to learn something from it. One of the themes Kurt and I touched upon is a central question we face in modernity. Are we over-intellectualized? Have we become hyper-cerebral Cartesian robots? Have we become afraid to drop into the body, into feelings, emotions, those parts of ourselves that make us human, that we have devalued for so long? I personally think we have become afraid to do that. But the goal in this episode was not to convince Kurt, but to stay with the questions themselves in the hopes that being with them would allow something new and worthwhile to emerge. I wasn't always comfortable in this episode, but I think that's okay. And if nothing else, I hope this episode pushes you to stay in discomfort when it arises in your own life, rather than immediately trying to flee from it. I believe discomfort can teach you something about human suffering, but also about beauty and joy. It has already taught me so much. Welcome, Kurt, to the Heart Speaks podcast. So good to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Chloe. So I was taking a look at some of your work online and I thought to myself, wow, I'm going to be so blown away by this guy. He knows so much, so much more than I do. Physics, consciousness, science, mathematics, all things that I am very much a novice, if even that. At So I wanted to start by asking you, I know you have a podcast called Theories of Everything. And I wanted to start by asking you, what is your current relationship with consciousness, with God? I know that you interview a lot of people who opine on these subjects, but I wanted to know if you personally had any um, relationship with these subjects right now. I'm sure it changes over time, but what is that like for you right now? Well, firstly, you and perhaps your audience will be woefully disappointed if they think that, (laughs) if you think that I have a wealth of knowledge in these subjects when it comes to theories of everything. So firstly, we should define what a theory of everything is. Many people, well, it's a physics term, first and foremost. And it means to unify what's called general relativity with what's called the standard model. And that usually is the theory of the large with the theory of the small is how some people describe it. Mm -hmm. And then the way that I take it is 
So my background is in physics and that is what I'm interested in. It's more of the mathematically rigorous theories of everything. But as well as I started, from when I started exploring this, I found that some people have their own, they would call it a theory of everything because they take that in a much more broad, they take that in a much more, well, they take it literally. And I also tend to take it literally, everything, Hmm. which means, well, what the heck is consciousness too? Some people think that consciousness has a constitutive role in reality. That is, it's fundamental. And somehow we have a relationship between what exists and our consciousness rather than it being a landscape of dead material that our consciousness emerges from. So I'm interested in what the heck is consciousness and then does that have a relationship to free will? And also, also what is God? So some people say God is, mm, that's tricky. As you know, that's tricky. Some people, the more those that are on the more new atheist end will say God is the person that's in the sky. It's a man that's a fictitious story that was useful perhaps, or perhaps not useful in the past. And we need to be rid of it. And I used to believe that as well. The more that I looked into the subject, the more that I realized that that's, see, there's this term called subreption, which means it's a deliberate misrepresentation. And I, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a deliberate misrepresentation, but it's somewhat of a straw man because it wasn't until recently that that idea has come about. And only with a certain subset of people, I was looking at the Pew data research. And it turns out that most people who consider themselves to be believers in God don't find it to be anathema to define God, that it's mm-hmm. any definition of God would automatically be diminished in what God is. Yeah. yeah. And that God has, it's, it's, these are extremely tricky subjects. Sure. Okay, so if you don't mind repeating the question once more, I don't believe I answered it. I believe I started to give some definitions as a preamble. Sure. So what is your current relationship with, your personal relationship with consciousness and with God? How do you personally perceive consciousness, given you know all of the beautiful minds that you've interacted with on both topics? Where, where are you right now? Well, where I am right now, it's, it's a strange place. It's not a comfortable place. Mm. When I interview people on the subject of theories of everything and consciousness, so let's talk about theories of everything. So the mathematically rigorous theories of everything, the physics theories of everything. For example, geometric unity may be familiar to some of your viewers or listeners. I, I go into the papers and I make sure that I research it as if I'm being, being tested in a course. And when it comes to the more, the theories on the consciousness end, some of the people who feel like they have their own theory as to what consciousness is say that you need to experience it. And I also tend to believe that, that consciousness is a, is a first-person activity, and it's a subjective first-person activity rather than a dispassionate, objective, third-person activity. And that latter approach is more of the neural correlates. So you hear people say that, well, consciousness comes about when there's a certain neural circuit, that a cortical loop, and the, the more active that loop is, the more conscious we feel. Well. Well, that's a correlate. So I try to, in the podcast, in the Theories of Everything podcast, I try to make sure that I bring the same level of research, perhaps it's experiential research instead of analytic research, Mm. to the more consciousness end. And then that tumbles me because there's so many varying theories. There's a quote by Rene Descartes that says something akin to, hmm, it's what happens when you repeatedly subvert the ground that you stand on mm-hmm. by doubting interminably. Mm. And I'm in that place. So it's like, he would say that it's as if I fall in unexpectedly into a whirlpool 
where I cannot stand on the bottom nor swim to the top. Mm. And then he has a great phrase, which is nevertheless, I'll still endeavor the same effort that I did yesterday today. Now I'm not sure about that last part, but I like that. And I used to believe that last part. Well, it's interesting. Either way, it's a strange place to be in. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Descartes and um, this sort of liminal space that he described himself as being in. It strikes me that, historically speaking, in the West, this has always been a kind of existential crisis to be in a in a in a sort of liminal, almost limbo esque state. Whereas in the East, it's not. And so I'm wondering how that lands for you. Yeah. Um, when you think about it, because I've been studying Taoism. I've been on a Taoist trip lately and it's actually enhanced my understanding of the Abrahamic faiths or at least Christianity and, Ju- and Judaism. Um, and, uh, and it's enriched it in a deeper way. So I'm curious how that impacts you, if at all. Yeah. Taoism provides me with some comfort. And I used to, I'm not an expert in this, but Confucius has some great sayings. However, Confucius was more if one wants to think of it, you can think of Confucius as more the radical left in terms of, (laughs) like this is an extreme generalization, but you can interpret it because he would say that in order to work on oneself, one needs to have an optimal society. And so it's a political theory in some sense, or it's a political philosophy in some sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas Lao Tzu, and Confucius and Lao Tzu lived around the same time. Confucius came to Lao Tzu and said, this is this may be apocryphal because we're not sure if this actually happened. But Confucius said that meeting Lao Tzu is like meeting a dragon. And the dragon is as high as one can get in the pantheon of Chinese animals. Mm-hmm. Lao Tzu was more about you cannot get rid of the bad without creating the bad. Right. And that it's all about balance. And that if there's a force on you, it's almost like Newtonian, you push back and then there's an equal and opposite force. So you, perhaps it's best to flow with it. Mm-hmm. So it provides me with a, a modicum of comfort. Hmm. However, you mentioned, okay, look, the, in the East, this existential crisis not seen as a crisis. Right. <clears throat> well, I have a crisis. I'm, I'm tortured by, the, by what I study. And I'm, I, don't, I don't hide that. Sure. I try to minimize it. But, it's, but perhaps that Lao Tzu would say, perhaps you shouldn't minimize it. What I've come to the, recently I've come to this conclusion that, that there isn't much of an emphasis in these religious new age circles about what practices work and which ones don't. So they'll almost uncritically adopt an Eastern practice in a Western world. And it may not be that that's productive. It may be like forcing your PC to install Mac software and all of a sudden you get errors everywhere. (laughs) It may be that we're in our bones, a Western, we're in our bones so Western that an Eastern solution produces the crisis. And the Eastern people would say, why is it producing a crisis? Well, you don't know what the software is like that we run on. And I don't like to think of the brain as running on software. I know that Yosha Bach, some people may be familiar with Yosha Bach. Yosha Bach likes to think like that. This is just an analogy. So here's, here's another analogy. Maybe that we're on the globe and that what we need to get to is, yeah, may, maybe what we need to get to is this, the North Pole. And depending on where you are on the globe, it's better to go north or it's better to go south. Mm-hmm. It may, so there's a path dependence. And I don't hear much about this in the new age circles. They would just uncritically adopt different strategies. Like you should mindfully meditate. Sure. See, I've forced myself to mindfully meditate for, for years and years. So I have, sorry, I have several questions that are bubbling up right now. First of all, it's, it seems to me that you're in search of something, but I'm not quite sure what it is. So if you could define, if possible, 
what you're in search of. I think that would that would help me understand some of the analogies that I mean the North Pole analogy makes sense to me, but I still don't precisely understand what it is you're searching for. So what would be at the North Pole once we got there, regardless of where we started? Some people may say inner peace. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. Although I I would certainly welcome that because I could certainly use it. <laughs> I am searching first and foremost for an understanding of the landscape of theories of everything in the physical sense, in the physics sense, mm-hmm. the mathematical sense, and then as and then secondarily, the consciousness sense, so the, the more Eastern sense, the more experiential sense. So first and foremost, analytical, and then secondly, experiential, almost to aid the analytical. The more that I study this, the more that I see that these may be integrally tied and perhaps one is the one that I, sh- perhaps the experiential one is the one that I should be pursuing as as the top one i was going to say it sounded Mm. like the order that you presented that in was the incorrect order at least at least from my perspective that's what most people who are more easternly inclined would say and i see so that's why i'm tumbled because i don't know i don't know what i'm searching for other than i'm trying to understand hmm there's this term that i like to use called a weltanschauung so Weltanschauung is my firstly, it's my mispronunciation of a German word, which the German word literally means Welt's a world, and Schauung means point of view, so your worldview. But the way that I use it is an all-encompassing worldview, such that such that any new piece of knowledge can be interpolated in your model. And then your model, your model contains its own updating mechanism. I know this all sounds abstract, but I'll give some examples. So if you were to speak to Ian McGilchrist and you were to ask him about this pen. Mm-hmm. He would say, well, the reason you have this pen and the reason why I'm holding it with my left hand is because of the brain and its left-right asymmetry. And, and he would have some well-articulated point of view. Now, Peterson would say, yeah, it's because the Oedipal mother and you want to make sure that Nietzsche is with Dostoyevsky, et cetera, et cetera. And he, they all have this, they all have a way of explaining almost any fact. Mm-hmm. And they also have a, they also in their model have a conception of ontology. And if your viewers aren't, don't know what ontology is, it just means what exists. You can think of it like metaphysics, what exists. Mm-hmm. And then they also, thirdly, have a consistency between their model and how they act. Now, some people, I know we don't want to talk about this, and I personally am not a fan of, of being anti-woke, but some people in the, or and the same with the alt-right, they have, they're hypocritical in what they say and how they act. Mm-hmm. And so, a Weltanschauung to me is to be consistent with what one professes their model to be and how one acts. Mm. Maybe what I'm doing is, is I'm on a journey to find or create my own Weltanschauung, or perhaps, see, I call the Theories of Everything podcast, I call it a project because it's not clear to me if it's a podcast per se, more than a project, because it seems like there's an end goal. And then it's not clear to me if this Weltanschauung should be a community-driven effort rather than an individualistic one, or perhaps it's both. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. I'm searching for also what I'm searching for. Okay. Now, do you know why you're searching for a worldview? Because I'm, I'm a confused person, and it's not a comfortable position for me to be in. It's, it's, for me to talk about this right now makes me somewhat nervous. Mm. And, right, it makes me somewhat nervous. Mm. It... It's, it's a destabilizing position to be in, and it's absolutely not comfortable. 
it, it's, well, but that wasn't why I started this. When I started the Theories of Everything project, it was because I've always been interested in certain fundamental mysteries. Why are we here? What is the, and I would have eschewed that question as being in the fictitious religious domain that tries to impose meaning upon the world. I don't see it the same way anymore, but I would have. And what are the origins of the universe? What is the origin of life? Mm-hmm. How does consciousness come about? So I'm interested in those questions ever since I was a kid. And then I went into filmmaking, so I abandoned that. And then I thought since this pandemic started, well, why don't I go and elucidate it for myself as well as others simultaneously via talking to people who claim to have the answers. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. And then as for where I am now, I'm, I'm just continuing on this journey, but I'm not sure where I am now. That's fair. It's a fair place to be. But you say that it's also uncomfortable. Yes, to say the least. That's very interesting to me. I've had a bit of a spiritual journey. What would I call it? I grew up in a non-denominational Christian family, which was very much similar to Seventh-day Adventists, which meant that I was exposed to Jewish thought at a very early age without realizing ah, that it was right, Jewish. Right, right, right. And so I w- had an insider-outsider relationship with both Christianity and Judaism because I grew up observing all the holy days in the Old Testament as a Christian. And I grew up not observing any of the mainstream Christian holidays like Christmas and Easter, also as a Christian, which gave me a, a paradoxical identity. And a, and a capacity to see sort of inside and outside things simultaneously. And that's probably why I ended up um, being attracted to Taoism on some level, because Taoism is, I think it welcomes the paradox as a, as a, as a fact of reality. Um, and also, it's not as if this paradoxical understanding, this limbo-like understanding is only exclusive to Eastern traditions, right? There are many Western mystical traditions that correlate or just have their own versions of what what would seem to be a more Eastern uh, viewpoint. And, you know, John Verveke has said that the Eastern-Western dichotomy is really an illusion anyway, to some extent. And so I'm very curious to... I mean, I've struggled in the past with, with identity crises from a spiritual perspective, And I know how discomforting that can be and that can feel. It feels like you're grasping for something, but you don't actually know what you're grasping for. (laughs) Um, And so I can, I resonate with that, but I'm still trying to, maybe it's not possible and that's okay. Part of me want, part of me has this impulse to try to fix everything and heal everything and ameliorate everything. And so I'm feeling this impulse within me now to, to tell you to be like, well, what about this idea? Or what about that idea? Or have you tried this? Or have you tried that? So why don't you tell me? Like what? Give me an example. But part of me wants to avoid that because I don't know if that's, <laughs> if that's the quote unquote right thing to do. Um, I can just say that I've been very much impacted by, I started meditating during when COVID hit. I started a meditation practice when the pandemic started. And at first I was just sort of moving along, doing my own thing. And it wasn't really impacting me deeply. And then I discovered John Verveke's work with his whole awakening from the meaning crisis. And then I discovered he has a meditation practice on YouTube that anyone can follow. 
And so then I started doing that. And it's really beautiful because it combines both Western, both quote unquote Western and Eastern traditions. And then some of the books that I started reading, which were about different mystical traditions. One book is about mystical Judaism or Hasidism or Kabbalah. And another book that I just finished reading by Ken Wilbur is called Spectrum of Consciousness, which is highly, highly Eastern. And so long story short, I began to see that there's this synthesis. It seems to me there's a synthesis between many Eastern and Western mystical traditions. And that, that is something I found comforting and, and almost poetic and almost elegant. And that's something that's really been really enriching for my life personally. Can you give me an example of what would ordinarily be thought of as a pure Western phenomenon or practice or viewpoint that you found that it's actually Eastern or has Eastern influences or is compatible? Um, so there's a particularly, some would say Jungian interpretation of Christianity, um, which I'm going to be really reductive about. <laughs> so uh, please bear with me as I try to paraphrase it. But the Jungian interpretation of Christianity essentially boils down to this idea that the prominent figure in Christianity, Jesus Christ, represents someone who was able to individuate, who was able to achieve psychological wholeness, who was able to achieve um, inner peace, if you will. And there's a book called The Tao of Christ, which actually explains that using Eastern Taoist uh, mystical metaphors, if you will. And so there is a kind of synthesis, or there can be a kind of synthesis between this Jungian depth psychology, individuation, perception of the world, and the Taoist sort of nothingness perception of reality. There can be a lot of overlaps and convergences depending upon, you know, the authors that one may read or the podcasts that one may come across. You mentioned Ken Wilber. Is he the integral theory or integral integer theory? That's my understanding. Spiral dynamics? I've only read one. I don't recall who. Yeah, I've only read the one book by him. But yes, he is. That's what he's known for. And what is that? Because I would like to speak to him. Um, I'm probably not the right person to answer that question. The book I read wasn't, I mean, it was, I guess it was the beginning of Integral theory, I can talk to you a little bit about spectrum of consciousness because I just finished it. Um, spectrum of consciousness is very interesting. It actually starts out by a discussion of physics. It starts out with this discussion of the, the perceiver not being able to be perceived. Uh, it starts out with talking about how like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because again, I'm a novice at all of this, but his understanding is that when you're measuring something in physics, the measurer themselves actually impacts the measurement. And so he goes on to talk about how there are many implications that come from this. One of them being that time is an illusion. Another of them being that the subject-object duality is also an illusion. And he, so he starts from a point of view of rooted in physics, and then he actually ends up speaking, speaking a lot about different Hindu... Taoist and Buddhist traditions and how they, how many writings and sayings and quotes from many of the mystics in these traditions 
actually confirm what many physicists have discovered about the nature of reality and the non-dual nature of reality. And he also talks about how wholeness can be achieved by unlearning the ways in which we've split the world. Us versus them, me versus you, projections, etc. And so that's the gist of the book. Okay, so the thoughts that occurred to me right now, the reason why I'm unsure whether the analytical approach or the experiential approach is one that should be primary is that people like Ken Wilber and I and, and Rupert Spira and Deepak Chopra, I'm not trying to, I know when Deepak's name is mentioned, some people scorn. I'm not saying that with any level of derision. They say what is fairly nebulous and unfalsifiable from a, from an objective standpoint so that you can't tell if what they're saying is true or not. Mm. And when it comes to their interpretations of quantum mechanics, there are, there's, this, there's this sense in the new age, for lack of a better term, community, that quantum mechanics says that the observer is necessary and has a role in creating reality. That's, that's one interpretation of quantum mechanics, and there are 10 or even 15 interpretations of quantum mechanics that are all consistent with what we've seen. So for example, one is that, that we just require non-local, something called non-local hidden variables. And then you don't need necessarily an observer to create reality. And another one is what's called superdeterminism, which says that it's all determined. And when we, it's all been determined before we all have, we've been correlated at some point in the distant past that we're and we have missing information, and this missing information is what brings about the uncertainty in quantum mechanics, and there's nothing mystical about it. There's also decoherence that, well, to explain decoherence is not trivial. Anyway, there's, people can look up decoherence. Sure. So there are many interpretations of quantum mechanics that don't require some outstanding role of the quote-unquote observer mm. or... And then there's the relational view of quantum mechanics as Carla Ravelli's, and there's the wave function is the universe. And that's the decoherence point of view when you hear many worlds. Mm. Hmm. So when I hear that, I feel like it's as if the new age type people have this view that they've already settled on. And then they see that physics has come to similar conclusions like, oh, see this all along. This is what we've been saying all along. Okay, what if in 20 years, because remember, quantum mechanics was just found out, quote unquote, about 100 years ago or so. What if in... 100 years from now, we realize, oh, our interpretation of quantum mechanics is entirely deterministic and it requires no observer. Then are those new age people going to give up their point of view? Perhaps not, because they already have that instantiated. So it's as if they're looking for evidence that confirms. However, the absence of that evidence doesn't disconfirm. So it's non-disconfirmatory evidence. And I'm not a fan of that type of evidence sure, or that type of reasoning. I'm not sure that that's a fair assessment of spectrum of consciousness. I can't speak to the other people that you've mentioned. I haven't actually engaged with their work. But spectrum of consciousness struck me as one of the more mathematically involved <laughs> texts that I've read in a long time. And it actually got me interested in physics and interested in mathematics. And, and I mean, I've been interested in science ever since I discovered John Verveke, really. But, but this particular text got me interested in physics as such. So I would recommend reading the texts, you know, taking it apart, do all of that. But I would also, I would also give it its fair shot because at least my impression was that it was 
it seemed mathematically grounded to me. I definitely am interested in, I think I've already confirmed an interview with Ken. We just have to set up the date. This was a few months ago. So I'm interested in going through his theory. I don't know his theory. Sure. I don't, yeah, I can't speak to it. That's fair. Um, I'm wondering, I know that you, I saw your film Better Left Unsaid. And I was wondering, you just mentioned another theory. Actually, if you could maybe repeat it. Um, Another theory of quantum mechanics. It was the second theory that you mentioned. Not before you mentioned the decoherence. Mm -hmm. There was one that you just... Super determinism? Yes. Can you explain that again? Okay. So one way of thinking about it is that if you look at the cosmic cosmic microwave background radiation, you see that that is if you look far off into the distance and when you look far enough, that's as if you're looking back in time. So if you look far enough back in time, you see that the universe is fairly uniform in every direction. However, these antipodal points, so if I go there and I go there, they shouldn't, they're so far separated that they, they shouldn't be so correlated with one another. They shouldn't be so uniform because in terms of, in terms of causation, so you can only be within, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. There's something called a light cone. And so I'm sure you've seen this, this Einsteinian light cone. Okay. And then if you're within the light cone, then you can be, you can influence one. Okay. Let me think about how to explain this. It doesn't matter. The point is that they shouldn't have been able, they're not within the causal light cone of one another. So they shouldn't have been able to influence one another. Okay. So super determinism says, well, perhaps far back enough in time, they were within some Inflation also says this. So it's not as if super determinism says this alone. But either way, the point is that there are correlations. There are all there is is correlation. It's not all there is is correlations, but everything is correlated. Okay. Mm. There's something you said earlier about, I think when you were describing this theory, about quantum physics doesn't require an observer, maybe, because what is unknown will one day be known or something like that. It doesn't, it doesn't require an observer necessarily for the quote-unquote collapse of the wave function. So the mystery in quantum mechanics is why is it that when we don't observe it, we have this a wave function that looks like a superposition of different states and a superposition. Don't worry about what that means. Okay. <laughs> but then when we observe it, it collapses to one of the states. So the standard example is a spin-up or spin-down particle in... Okay. So if you look at it... If you, you can't look at the electron, but if you, if you model the electron, then it's, you can prepare it in a state that is a superposition of being 50%. I mean, you've heard that. Let me say something that might um, spark an insight. You said something specifically about there, there, there's a theory in which there's no need for an observer. The known, the unknown will become known and ultimately there's no mystery. I don't know about the unknown will become known. I don't know if I said that, <laughs> but if I did, then I, I misspoke. I don't. I don't know. I could, I I could have misheard also. Even, okay, that's fine. That's fine. I wouldn't even place the interpret any of those interpretations as, as known versus unknown. There just is. Well, you said something specifically about mystery, though. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember using the word mystery. I'm sorry. So maybe I used a synonym of mystery, and I'm trying to remember exactly what I said. But the, I don't let, remember exactly. Let me tell you what I'm getting at. Let me tell you what I'm getting at. Or let me try to articulate <laughs> I'm getting it. Sure, sure, um, sure, sure. I have a theory. 
of many theories. But one of my theory is that what I want to do is I want to try to bridge the gap between some of the things that we're talking about, search for meaning, search for consciousness, what is consciousness, what is God, etc. But especially search for meaning. I want to try to bridge the gap between that and um, better left than said, which I think you sort of try to do at the end um, of the song. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, but I, my theory is that the quote unquote woke, which I'm increasingly not afraid, uh, fond of that term, but the quote right. unquote woke, they are actually revolting against a world created by Descartes. And they are ultimately, they, they may not be explicitly aware of this, but I think that the fervor and the sort of um, explicit statements, especially that we saw in 2020 um, around Black Lives Matter, where you had people promoting or producing posters where they would say like, don't perpetuate whiteness. Well, what is whiteness? Whiteness is us versus them thinking. Whiteness is uh, linear, objective, rational ways of thinking. Whiteness is showing up on time, blah, 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 blah. Whiteness I, is us versus them? Yes, this was on. They would group. say whiteness is, okay, interesting. It's ironic, it doesn't make sense. But but what I think, <laughs> what I think is actually underneath all of that is a, because one African-American woman, I, who was a professor, I believe, was talking about how like, she was saying black people don't do analytical work, which doesn't, which isn't accurate. And a lot of people, a lot of conservatives got angry at her for this. But she also said black culture is such that we are, we're, we're tied to our families. We're tied to sort of a context. And what I was hearing in between the lines was something that Ian McGilchrist has actually spoken about, um, which is this failure of the emissary, failure of the left brain, right? When not being, when not honoring the right brain, um, this analytical sort of impulse to measure and to control and to predict for the purposes of controlling and predicting and how that has created an incredible um, wasteland in the West. And what I, what I was hearing in between the lines of many things that were being said in 2020 in the sort of woke black versus white debate was a revolt against Cartesian frameworks. And it was a revolt that was manifesting in ways that are very unhealthy and very problematic and very, um, uh, very much in a way that would perpetuate problems of us versus them thinking. But I have a creeping suspicion that that's actually what's underpinning a lot of this. And I'm curious what you think of that. Yeah, this connection between the philosophy and what's happening with the extreme left and the extreme right is something I used to be so interested in. I'm not, <laughs> the reason why I, I'm not anymore is because I feel like it may be a distraction of mine and it may be, mm. it's also extremely complicated, way too complicated for me to analyze. Anything that's political, is extremely, extremely com more complicated than mathematics, at least for me, because math okay. is extremely simple in terms of you just start with axioms and you, sure. well, it's, it's extremely clear. This, it's disambiguated. Mm. As for the left and the, as for the extreme left and then the brain, this asymmetry in the brain, I'm curious, Chloe, because this is something I've thought about. And I believe it's something that I, 
I don't think Ian answered precisely. Mm. Is it, would you map? I'm curious about what your thoughts are. Would you map the extreme left and perhaps the extreme right? Because I see them as somewhat similar. Would you map them onto the left side of the brain or the right side of the brain? Or you feel like that's unproductive and false? Um, that's probably true. That's probably too reductive to map them on one side of the brain or another side of the brain. I think that when one is, as Ian McGillicris points out, when a when an entire civilization is motivated exclusively by the left brain, which is sort of this analytical need to control and predict and have certainty and not be in right relationship with the unknown, then you will lack the relational piece. You will lack, you will lack the capacity to be in relationship both with yourself, which contains a mystery, and with the rest of the world, which at the heart of which is also a mystery. And this will lead to alienation and despair. And because you don't have the proper tools to deal with alienation and despair, which I would argue the proper tool is the relational, right? Then you will continue to split the world into us versus them, me versus you, black versus white, whiteness versus blackness, etc. And so that's what I think has been going on in these culture wars. Yeah. Have you mentioned Ian McGillchrist before on your podcast? I'm not sure. It's possible. I've definitely talked about him on Twitter, but I don't know if I've mentioned okay. him on my the, podcast. The reason is that his book, The Master and His Emissary, it's, there's only two books that I recommend for virtually everyone who watches the Theories of Everything podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's The Master and His Emissary was mm-hmm. one of them. The other one's Order of Time. But that's And by the way, that's about a relational view of quantum mechanics, which says that... I just mm, ordered that book. Says, Actually. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because of because you I heard from? you mention it on your on oh, your great, podcast. Great. Yeah. Oh, I'm, that's 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 great. I'm glad to contribute to Carla Ravelli's author to to people knowing more about his ideas. So Carla would say, if you look at this pen, hmm, well, he likes to use speed. See, speed okay. is a relative term. If this hmm. pen doesn't actually have a speed, the speed depends on if you're moving toward it or if it's this is Galilean relativity. It's just standard. If you, you don't know if a car is moving or if you're moving toward the car, more fundamentally, there are other attributes that we think are inveterate qualities of this pen. Like, mm-hmm. let's say mass, let's sure. say orientation is also orientation. Almost clearly, there is no objective orientation because it depends on where I am. So I can right. say that it's oriented straight up or straight down, depending on if I'm upside down, if I'm doing a handstand. But then mass, we would say, well, mass is an object. Well, then there's also relative mass and so on. And Carlo Ravelli would say that all the properties of the pen are in the relation, just like it's mm. unclear what its velocity is. That's a relational mm. property that all the properties of the pen are relational. In fact, all of everything is relational. Yes. And then that, that, leads an, that leaves an interesting conundrum because if what you're saying is mathematically, there's something called a graph and then you have edges and then you have what connects those two nodes. Sorry. Mm. Yep vertices and you have what connects those two so sure. he's saying well the edges are primary the relations are primary however mm-hmm. you can invert that there's a dual notion and you can say that the edges are primary and that's what i was asking carlo why is it that you say that if because if you're saying the relations are primary you mm-hmm. can actually flip that mathematically they're equivalent of saying that the vertices are primary he said mm-hmm. yes you can do that and then what's interesting is then then what's interesting is if carlo Ravelli is to be believed then it would have to be quote-unquote relations all the way down that there is no bottom it's just relations 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 and then strange 
if he's a physicist, how do you bootstrap your way up? Because you start with axioms, you start with something. Mm. How do you, he doesn't have a well-defined theory with that, at least as far as I can tell, Mm. but he does, he is of the opinion that it is relationships all the way down, relations all the way down. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Hmm. A friend of mine actually mentioned in passing the other day that the, the most, um, the smallest unit is relationship, which was interesting because that was before I heard of this guy on your podcast. <laughs> so, See, there's another view. So Carla would say that time is illusory because of this. Mm-hmm. There's a way that you can connect this and make an argument that time is illusory. However, Carla's greatest collaborator, Lee Smolin, who's a physicist, one of the greatest living physicists mm-hmm. of quantum gravity, Lee Smolin says, no, no, no. Time is actually what is most fundamental and the rest is illusory. And someone else that I've spoken to recently named Nicholas Gisson comes to a similar argument from another perspective that has to do with free will, which is so fascinating, Chloe, because all of these topics, you're wondering, how are these tied? I'm wondering, how are these tied? There seems to be a connection between consciousness and God. There seems to be a connection between that. There seems to be a connection between that, between that and meaning, between that and free will, between that and physics. What is that connection? So I, so it's as if what's happening with, with your podcast, perhaps with mine as well, is we're touching, you've heard the story of touching the elephant at different parts and not realizing that it's the same object. That's what I feel like, except that I'm not at the stage where I see it's the same object at a verbal articulated level. Maybe it's a pre-verb, maybe it's a pre-verbal level. Sorry, maybe it's a, at a pre-verbal level. And I have intimations that that this that these are all reflecting on some underlying quote unquote reality. Mm. But as for exactly how that comes about. I don't know. And I've had feelings like experiences where I'm about to touch true reality. And it was extremely terrifying, extremely, extremely, extremely terrifying. Some of the most terrifying experiences of my Why was it entire so- life. I can't, I can't even talk about it without mm. perhaps sending myself into another bit of mental instability and crisis. It, it's because it's such a recent experience of mine. Mm. That I'm only now recovering from Chloe. Part of why I had to push this back was because I had some, I, I let's say an episode. I don't know what to call it. It wasn't a panic. Like to call it a panic attack would be a, a lovely word for it. Like I wish it was a panic attack hmm. about this subject, partly because I treat this subject so solemnly and so zealously, so diligently and so devotedly mm-hmm. that when I'm interviewing someone, I try to take on their theories. They're, I try to take it on experientially. Like if I'm interviewing Ken Wilber and he says, you need to do this meditation practice in order to understand my theories. You can't just understand it by reading it. Well, then I'm going to, I'm going to try my best to emulate the meditation practices in order to understand his theories. But then there's so many different kinds. And I mentioned an analogy of PC software with, sorry, PC with Mac. With Mac software. Well, imagine then there's Linux as well. And imagine there's 10 different ones being installed on my PC or being installed on whatever. Yeah. There's so many errors. And I'm so, I, I'm so confused. And it's well, so I, do, I can't describe that experience. Yeah. It sounds to me like what you're experiencing is what, Verveke would call combinatorially explosive, right? It's like there's too too much to process. There's too much that you're trying to process all at once. 
And it's, it, it sounds like to me that you believe that it's only by processing it all that you will achieve true reality. But maybe I have got that wrong. What, is that where you are conceptually or is it somewhere else? It's that right now, because I'm at least somewhat in a sane, stable state, I feel as if I'm behind my eyeballs speaking to you as an individual, and perhaps you similarly, perhaps people who are listening similarly, perhaps they feel like there's these objects around them. That's such a wonderful place to be in. I never realized how, how comforting that is and how precious that is. That is mm. so effing precious, Chloe. Mm. The place where I was, was I was in a place where, oh man, I can, I can barely, I can barely say it, but. You also don't I have to talk about it if you don't reasons. want to. Okay, sure, sure, sure. But the, the point is that it's not about, there are too many options. It's that there was ambiguity as to what is ontology. So ambiguous ontology. Mm. And, and that sounds like, well, see the up until what, about three what, weeks ago. What, what is, is so much. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and what could be is also so much. And then the relationship of what could be to what is. Is it true that all possibilities exist? Man, and I can intellectually understand that. And that's a comfortable place. That's where I mm. love to be. Because it's so effing. It's so, it's so. Mm. Comforting is the nice, is the, it's the only word that I can use right now compared to what I was, which was extreme discomfort. Right. It's such a comfortable place to be in. But to actually comprehend that, to think of what that means to treat it seriously, is it will at least leave me in a void that of inoperativeness and mm. feeling like I'm on the brink of a place where I may not be able to recover from. So mm. I don't know if what I should be doing right now. Oh yeah, and then I had this intimation, Chloe, this intimation that Kurt, what you've been doing with your life, not just with the Theories of Everything podcast, is thinking way too much. You think, <laughs> think you're such an analytical person. <laughs> yeah. Such an, trust your feelings. Trust your feelings, Kurt. Trust it. Ground yourself in your feelings. And it's not to say that thinking is wrong, but Kurt, you've been doing it way too much. Way too much. And look at where it's leading you. You're spiraling out of control. Mm. In a, and so... I had to keep telling myself so hard, Chloe. It was so hard. It was like, it was metaphorically and almost literally like I was being pushed in this afloat somewhere. And there was someone, luckily there was someone calling me in this interesting. Don't follow that. Trust. Come here. That is, there is actual danger. There is danger. Come here. Come. You have to fight it. You have to. I know it's saying. But this is like to a Dallas. This is like anathema to a Dallas. You have to fight it. For me, at that state, this is why I'm saying that perhaps certain lessons are for certain people at different times. Sure. And that's, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I. It sounds like you might be going... That's one of the dangers of spiral... Sorry, I'm so... I don't mean to but That's okay. Um, I was just going to say, it sounds like you might be going through this, um, what has been termed the dark night of the soul <laughs> experience. Yeah. Well, the fact that you even... That even has a a name i'm glad because i it feels it brings me some amount of joy or at least a lack of sorrow to feel like it's a common enough experience that there's a name for it it's one of you know when you go to a therapist and they diagnose you you actually feel better or a yeah. doctor because you feel like oh, okay at least if it has a name there's probably right. a treatment other people feel you can this. name it right so 
Yeah, yeah. So that's that's great. I also wonder if you've ever played a musical instrument. Yeah, I play, I play, or I used to play the guitar. I haven't played in years, and that's something I spoke to Emma Gilchrist about because I'm so analytical, Chloe. I, I was going to say, yeah, you should. Uh, if I were you, I would start listening to music, and I would start playing music again. Yeah, yeah, I should do that. I'm much more a fan of playing than I am of listening. Okay. So I, same with films. So I'm a filmmaker and I, I'm not a, I watch films to pass the time with my wife. It's an enjoyable activity, mm-hmm. but it's not as if I actually like creating more than I do consuming. Mm. Perhaps you're the same. If you're, I think maybe that's an, but I'm not entirely sure. Maybe that's my own idiosyncrasy. I, I like to think of, yeah. I like to think of, I was reading this beautiful book on Jewish philosophy called um, The Roots of Jewish Consciousness by Eric Newman, who was a student of Carl Jung um, and who's brilliant. And he talks about this idea in Hasidic Judaism and how it, con- it contrasts with Gnosticism, although there are some overlaps. But Hasidic Judaism, in its, in its original iteration, promoted introversion, right, in order to achieve psychological wholeness. But then so that you could go back out into the world and reveal to the world what has been revealed to you and help the world essentially. So I am an introvert by nature, but, and I, and I have a love hate relationship with social media because of that. But I, but I do love that idea of needing to go inward and outward and, and be in balance. And there's also like a, there's also a musical um, analogy there when it comes to jazz, for example, um, a jazz musician, if a jazz musician is playing with other jazz musicians, then there's some ambiguity there. There's some, un- there has to be a kind of unknownness with which one can riff. And that's part of the context that actually beautiful jazz can emerge from. If everything was known, if everything was pre-known, then jazz wouldn't be as exciting or surprising, Right. And so for me, balancing the introversion with, with the extroversion is an attempt to, to go out into the unknown and to be challenged by the unknown, but also to be delighted by the unknown. And what I'm hearing in some of the things that you're challenged by right now, and this probably is off because of the insufficiency of words, but your relationship with the unknown seems to be one of terror. Somewhat right now. Right yeah. now, I'm hypersensitive to that. It w- yeah. I wouldn't have said that that was the case up until about three weeks ago, mm-hmm. but it's becoming abated. I mean, it's it's abating right now. Mm-hmm. It, so I'm much like you're getting me on a good day, missing me on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> if you, I can tell you what the last couple of weeks were like, but anyway, the the point of that is, well, you mentioned something interesting. You said words are insufficient and. There's someone called Wittgenstein who's of the analytic tradition too, an analytical Mm -hmm. philosopher, analytic philosopher, who said that of what one cannot speak of precisely, one must be silent. Mm. And then also, which I resonate with, and that's one of the reasons for me explicating as specifically as I can when I choose my words, as well as with the podcast, exploring it with as as much rigor as I can, Mm because I feel like much of philosophical problems are a result of dubious meaning. So mm-hmm. let's say even the word consciousness, perhaps that word should be fractionated to John Verveke's adverbial versus adjectival consciousness. That's not John Verveke's, but he popularizes that. 
And I believe Yosha Bach uses phenomenological consciousness versus some other type of consciousness versus some other type of consciousness. Perhaps these words we use and the paradoxes that we feel are because we're using a term that is polymorphous. And so we're taking one aspect of it and finding contradictions when actually they're separate aspects. Mm -hmm. So I like that from Wittgenstein. But then Wittgenstein also had his ladder, which said that the whole point of my, I believe is tractatus or tractate. The whole point of it was to get you to this point where you realize now that there's no point even to speaking at all. This is all <laughs> foolish. And I tend to like that, at least right now, though my views change on a, a monthly basis. Mm. The reason is that, the reason I like that is that I, I do wonder how much of reality is like a fractal in the sense that at any scale, it's similar to any other scale. And so the investigation of any phenomenon to its extreme leads you to the same answer of if you were to investigate it through some other means. That's one of the reasons why I'm not so sold on this solely experiential approach over the analytical approach because people like Cantor, who was a mathematician, believed by studying infinite sets, he was studying the mind of God, and perhaps he was. Perhaps if you study logic to its extreme, you come to the same conclusions as if you were to fully experience to the extreme. Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> I don't, it strikes me, that strikes me as impossible. That is my intuitive gut level reaction. Um, yeah. It strikes me as impossible because consciousness is embodied. And so this idea of a kind of hypercerebral, um, this idea of defining a hypercerebral approach to the study of logic as though it is itself divorced from experience. I mean, it is a kind of experience, right, to study logic uh, to the infinite extreme. The question, so it's not a dichotomy between experience versus the study of logic. The study of logic yeah, is an experience. It's similar to how, at least colloquially, the difference between the West and the East is the East would say, sorry, the West would say, there is good and bad. You choose the good and you right. use your will and choose the good. And then mm -hmm. the East would say, that's all illusory. And the whole point is to realize that's illusory. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that both of those approaches are the same in some manner, similar to look, if you're at a part of the globe, you can go North to get mm -hmm. to the North pole, or you can actually go South and you end up to the North pole if you go mm -hmm. sufficiently far enough. So I have a feeling that it's somewhat akin to that. Yes, but I would I would push harder though and say that if if one conceives of oneself as a bodiless mind, then and one acts that way in the world, then I mean this is a very McGill Christian <laughs> uh, argument, but one will become cut off from oneself. And I don't know that if one is cut off from oneself that they can discover the mind of God. Now, I'm not saying that this is what this person was doing. Um, You're referring to Cantor with the infinite sense? Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm very cautious because in the West, we do have this long history of elevating the analytical framework over the experiential. There is, you understand yes, the point yes, I'm making. I understand. It's not really yeah. a dichotomy, but... Um, we do have this history of conceiving ourselves as bodiless. I mean, Descartes said in one of his um, writings that I could 
and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I, I can exist without my body. Right. And so there is this thread within Western civilization, which creates a kind of disembodiment, which celebrates disembodiment and then becomes alienating. Um, I can give you an example. So -hmm. there's someone who I'm sure you're familiar with named Gibson. It's a psychologist Mm -hmm. who you've heard the term embodied cognition. So embodied cognition, body cognition. Descartes was on the more cognitive end saying that I don't even need my body. I'm purely a screen for sensory input. And then there's on the, right now, the trend in cognitive science is embodied cognition, which is somewhere in the middle. And then on the extreme end of the bodied part is Gibson, who would say that we're just bodies. And what we're doing is simply floating. We're attuned to our environment. And that's where these notions of optimal grip, which you've, I'm sure you've heard Verveke talk about, come from. And one way to think about that is much like there are some Victorian devices that have no cognition. They're just robots in a sense, but they're executed. They're put together in such a manner that if you roll them down a hill, they look like they're walking. They're like dolls, but they look so beautiful as if they're walking. It's because they're engineered so perfectly with their environment. So they're pure bodies. Now, Gibson was more on the pure body end. And he came to that conclusion from some scientific observations so that you can think of that as analytical. Through some, through, so that is through analytical means he came to the conclusions that the body through analytical means he came to the conclusion that the body matters most and that all we are our bodies now that's a bit of an oversimplification but that's an example of how even though you're saying we should start with the body i'm saying no you can also start with the mind and perhaps come to the same conclusion and also perhaps though this doesn't seem to be done perhaps starting experientially would lead you to an an analytical approach yes but i would disagree with gibson's uh conclusion right i i wouldn't say that you should start with the body over the mind, but rather to realize that there's a, there's a relationship between the body and the mind. And so to, to go into an analytical, a purely analytical exercise without taking into account one's own feelings, psychology, emotions, you know, all the things that make us who we are as human beings is, a, is kind of a, well, it's folly in a sense. Um, yeah. See, I'm as if you've ever followed Peterson, I'm sure you know he's a fan of saying the logos is akin to Christ, if not the same as Christ, mm-hmm. and that the root of the word logic is logos. And so studying logic, one way to think about what the logos is, is where it developed from. There's this, and so I'm articulating this here for the first time. So forgive me if I stumble upon my words. There's this in ancient Greece, there's this diviner called goes i believe the goes are goes and what they would do this is maybe minus 1000 so 1000 bc mm-hmm. they would speak in tongues mm-hmm. and somehow make prophecies from that and so what they would do would be would be they would go into some other world speak in tongues and somehow extract information from that and that is almost the root of what logos is because it was the first time that you attach Firstly, it means that you can communicate with this other truer world. Secondly, that you can extract information from it. Thirdly, that there's a, an order to it. And fourth, that it has something to do with speech and something to do with, well, something to do with speech. And then from that, you get the ideas of, of when you would ask an ancient Greek person, let's say minus 600, so 600 BC, I say minus because it's just easier for me. So 600 BC, 
what languages do you speak? It wasn't as if they would say, I speak German and I speak French and so on, presuming those languages exist back then. They would say, oh, I speak the rocks. If they were mm. a stratigrapher, for example, or study mm -hmm. strateg stratigraphy, or I, I speak the language of life. If they were a biologist, bio biologist, so the logic of life. And what they mean is that because I can understand the principles by which this operates, and I can use that to communicate, no, not communicate, I can use that to interact with it properly, that's mm -hmm. as if I'm speaking the language. Mm -hmm. Then you can abstract that further and wonder, what is the logic of the universe? For example, I'm sure you've heard of the law of the excluded middle, which says that it's either, some proposition is either true or false. Mm -hmm. Okay, it turns out that that may not be the case. There are other forms of logic. Either way, the, the point is that there's logic. And what is logic? What is the true logic? It's almost like, what is, the, what is happening with the universe? How do I communicate? How do I act properly with the universe? And Verveke may say this, how do I know? How do I conform to the universe? Well, all of this is my roundabout way of saying that it's not clear to me. And I'm not saying that I've decided upon an analytical approach over an experiential one at all. Mm -hmm. I'm, saying that, I'm saying that it's not clear to me that predominantly we should have the experiential over the analytical or vice versa. Mm -hmm. It's not clear to me that one is right. One's more of an imperative than the other. It's not clear to me, though it may be that for where we are in society as a whole in the West, we've been overvaluing the scientific and the propositional mm -hmm. and that we need to start to value other forms of knowledge, like the perspectival and participatory and yeah. right participatory and procedural yeah. right 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 so it may be that and but it may not be that that's just the case for everyone every at every instant sure. across humanity or across the world sure. so that's what i mean is that it it could be the case as a whole for our culture but it not may not be the case as a whole for other cultures or other beings or it may not be a cosmic truth that we need to value the experiential over the propositional that is sure well just reminds me of a book by Robert Bly, a little book on the human shadow, where he talked about how like some cultures may have overvalued the analytical, and so they need to focus on the experiential, whereas other cultures may have overvalued the experiential, and they need to focus on the analytical. But all of this is in service of an attempt to bring balance to the world. And so that ba balance is not a... Verveke has said this, balance is not like a propositional thing that falls from the sky. Balance requires practice. It, it requires attunement, much like you would need in playing an instrument. And depending upon where you're situated and the culture that you belong to, what you will need in order to bring balance to your life will differ from person to person and from culture to culture. But that still speaks, in my mind, to an elegance of the cosmos. And I think that that's ultimately a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a very fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you. And I would like to know a bit more about your, your theory of enchantment. I'd like to know more about that at some point. Sure, we can definitely talk about it. I'm happy to also invite you back on another time if you'd like that. Thank you, Chloe. You're welcome. I would like that, yes. Awesome. All right, well, Kurt, I'll let you go, but thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Chloe.